Hello all. I don't want to keep this introduction hefty because actually the most pure things are the most simple. And simply put, in a brief, concise manner, our guest for today deserves a, pa a pack of a punch of an intro. It's uh, Bob Forrester, who has over 50 plus years of global philanthropic experience in that sector, in that area. On five decades, it's amazing. And something in what she did was also create Newman's Own and Newman's Own Foundation with Paul Newman himself. Bob even took over as CEO when Paul passed in September of 2008 and exceeded many marks in the giving efforts of Newman's Own. And it's amazing what Newman's Own has done and the experience and insight that Bob has gained in his life, even creating three companies before Newman's Own was created. So with all that experience, he brings to the table such insight. And this conversation is something I really will look back on and, and rewatch myself. So I hope you enjoy. Leave a comment or a review or whatever you're watching on. I would love to get your feedback. Bob would love to hear it too. But thank you for joining. And I'll see you next time. I have a dream. That's one small step for man. something go get it period and I, I would love to start on, on the quote you just said because the quote incorporates luck and as we'll talk a lot about Paul Newman and, and your relationship with him you guys both talked about luck a lot right. um, so I'd love for you to mention that quote that you just said uh, before what was it well the uh, luck itself is not a plan but if you don't have a plan, the chances of that being able to even see luck when it comes your way are diminished and certainly your ability to manage luck appropriately. So uh, you can't just go along hoping to be lucky, but if all you have is a plan and there isn't good luck along the way, it's gonna be a tougher plan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and there's one thing that Paul said I had here that in the Newman's Own Foundation boardroom, uh, there's a quote that's on the wall that says, if I had a plan, I would have been screwed. So I would love to get some context from your, from context, from your point of view of, of what that meant to you guys. Yeah. Well, it meant a great deal to Paul. It was actually in his, his, his uh, own office and, and it meant a lot to me too. And, and it was, uh, you know, it's, it was such a, it's a, such a great window into who Paul was as a person. One is, it, it is clear that you see his, his sense of a reverence and his sense of humor. The guy had, he was just had a wonderful sense of humor and, and he was quite irreverent. He, <clears throat> he didn't want to be seen as taking himself too seriously. And um, um, he felt, you know, it was part of his humility, but so there, there are complexities to, to that, that uh, quote. And uh Basically, um, the one of the things, and I actually had Paul later uh, come to change how he uh, articulated that, and he substituted later in his life a phrase of creative chaos mm. uh, for <clears throat> the, if I had a plan, if I didn't have a plan, I would have been, or if I had a plan, rather, I would have been screwed. It was creative chaos because what Paul really meant. Uh, were a couple of things. One, outside of the irreverence and humor, is that he really uh, was a person who just didn't like rigid corporate top-down structure and thinking. It it uh, it bothered him. It it was it was hierarchical. It muted other voices, and it also came from his experience. And this is how I talked to Paul about it as an actor. And what Paul was saying to me once, he said, well, you know, what you see on stage or what you see in the movie theater uh, is really the result of all sorts of interactions that take place over time through rehearsals. And everybody's there, whether it's the director or the, uh, the, the person delivering the coffee or, or the, the person holding the mic or the cameraman, they're all offering opinions. And, and it's from that chaos, that creative chaos, that comes a real good product. Uh, and when he's talking about a product, he's not talking about a finite product, like a food product, but, but whatever the idea is, the concept 
Mm-hmm. If things get too corporate, too structured, too hierarchical, then then the voices are muted, and the ideas become dim, if you will. That was his feeling about things, and um, it was particularly important to him that Newman's own uh, always remain, in his own words, non-corporate. He said it's one of the proudest things about Newman's own is that it's not too corporate, and that's what he meant. So. Mm. If I had a plan, I would have been screwed to creative chaos, which is really the expression of what he was saying is get lots of voices into your decision-making, your idea creation. Uh, And then really he didn't want a place of bosses, um, a hierarchical place, a place that was pre-planned and everything. Um, And that was one of the more difficult things uh, to deal with because in running a business, particularly like a food business, as it grows, uh, particularly those people that come with that background are looking for the the security of uh, how things get done. Well, this is the way they have always been done. Yeah. And at Newman's Own, and, and Paul, that's what he didn't want. He wanted spontaneity. He wanted to take risks and do things differently. And, and it worked very well for him. Of course, he was Paul Newman. And he could pull it off. That that helped a lot. Yeah, absolutely. And and do you think those points of having many ideas contributed and also uh, having it not be as hierarchical allowed it to still have that uh, startup or like young energy to it as you guys grew? Because you guys did a lot of things that were unconventional, but also extremely impactful. For example, 100% of the profits being donated uh, right. to the Newman's Own Foundation, but that giving to communities or charities and stuff, um, were those the reasons that you guys were able to incorporate such things and and also the point of having really good values? I can see that. Well, um, again, you have to go back to how it all began. And, and, um, and Paul started Newman's Own almost as that he would refer to it as a joke. Um, he, yeah, something I was going to bring up. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, every holiday he would, uh, with his buddy, uh, A. Hotchner, they would mix up a big batch of his uh, oil and vinegar salad dressing and uh, fill up empty wine bottles and take it off to neighbors as Christmas gifts and holiday gifts. And um, a few months later, people would show up asking for refills. And it was really good stuff. Paul was a great, he had an amazingly wonderful palate for food he, he mm. just had a taste for it my wife is um, very studied in, in food and she and Paul did a lot of recipes together and things but he really just had a an, an, uh, intuitive sense of food um, and uh, so it was good stuff and somebody convinced him to um, put it in a store and he thought that would be fun and uh, um, and then what happened is when somebody else said as they decided to, for whatever reason, to explore maybe selling it on a larger basis than just a local store. Uh, He was told by professionals in the field that, well, nobody's gonna buy your salad dressing unless you put your face on it. And that ran into Paul's sense of personal humility. Uh, He he did did not want to be seen as special. Uh, He he simply did not want to, be using his celebrity um, in his personal life, if you would. Mm-hmm. Um, and what finally convinced him is when he decided, okay, we'll do that. Then I'm going to pledge a hundred percent of the profits. So Paul owned it all. He owned uh, the, the food company and all the intellectual property associated with it. Uh, then I'm going to give a hundred percent. I'll commit a hundred percent of the profits I as the sole owner make to charity. And at that time, he coined the famous expression, shameless exploitation for the common good. Again, that was something that Paul came up with himself. Ah, you know, I'll put my face on it and I'll, I'll get out there and I'll say, I'm being shameless for the common good. And mm-hmm. that, that was able, enabled him to overcome the hurdle of his own personal sense of, uh, uh, I don't want to be self-promoting in this. Mm-hmm. Um, he had always been generous in his life. Uh, the Newman Zone just became another vehicle for expressing his generosity. Um, so it, it, 
it goes back to if I had a plan, I would have been screwed, is that there was no plan for Newton's home. Mm. Um, it was a subchapter S corporation, if you're familiar with that construct. It, it's essentially a proprietorship in, in this case um, with a corporate uh, protection shell around it. And every year, Paul had to drain all the profits out and the company would essentially collapse financially because it had no, no money in it. So Paul would have to reinfuse money back into it uh, or actually borrow money to, to get it back in wow. uh, because because he wouldn't take the money out uh, because, gee, that's profit. It has to go to charity. So maybe what he would do is go and put his name on a loan to get the money back in for the working capital and get it going again. But it was really creative chaos going on. Um, and uh, as an entrepreneur, and I was one myself, um, started three companies and um, uh, none of them nearly, nearly as successful as Paul Newman. Um, uh, but like Paul, I didn't have a, a background in business when I started them. So I was, and he was always saying, well, gee, I had a good year this year, but next year it's not going to work. So you were really um, uh, wanted to avoid things like debt and taking on a lot of overhead. And that's another thing that, uh, that typified Newman's own in the early days. You know, Paul was, mm. um, you know, using, he used his lawn furniture, his pool furniture actually to, furnish the office because he didn't and his wife didn't know about it until uh, it came time to bring the pool furniture out and there was no pool furniture it was over these offices Paul was setting up because he didn't think this thing was going to work so why go out and buy new furniture and mm. um, now that that was a wonderful thing because that's the the spirit of Newman's own this this kind of we will do it if it feels right we'll go ahead and do it we're doing it for a good purpose the downside of that was they never really built a what might even closely resemble a a, a business structure inside. Uh, it was more like things got layered as you went along. Not not atypical at all of entrepreneurs uh, that uh, of a certain kind. And you know, Paul was that kind of entrepreneur. He mm. he, he did not have a five year. Uh, plan that he brought in and capital to invest and build out and you know build a rate of return into the future. Those things just didn't exist. It was more like money in, money out, money in, money out. It's called for a good purpose, and let's make sure we're having fun while we're doing this. Uh, you know that it's satisfying. We're not taking ourselves too seriously. Um, that was the energy of Newman's Own. That was the spirit. That's what inspired others. Uh, was this kind of just hey, it's the right thing to do. Let's have, let's have a go at it. Yeah, yeah. I, I think I saw something that said he didn't have a vision, but he had the values and the values helped uh, bring his own energy into the company itself, which basically was an embodiment of, of him in a way. Um, and, and I did see some things too, which is pretty incredible. I'm going to reference it here, but it seemed like Paul, I don't know the history of uh, philanthropy and all of that, but it seemed like he was one of the first major people in acting that started to do this thing of, of charity giving back, making businesses for social impact, because there was a couple of references where like Edward Norton created Crowd, uh, Crowd Rise and then Kevin Bacon created right. org and those companies. And now like, my, like in 2021, and even a couple of years before that, like Leonardo DiCaprio's one of the biggest faces for um, combating climate change. So it's cool to see Paul kind of be the precedent to how to do that well. And it seemed like you guys just did it so, um, because of everything you just said, you did it so easily. It probably didn't seem like that behind the curtains because it was probably hard, but like it, you just have that smoothness and that energy to everything. Yeah, I... Uh, I don't think, you know, Paul was such, when he started Newman's Own, he was such a, he wasn't just a movie star. He was kind of a movie constellation of stars. He was really, uh, you know, such a very major person in Hollywood. Um, and that helped, certainly, his, his celebrity, you know. Um, it, you have to get somebody to buy the food the first time. Um, and 
they're not going to buy it the second time unless it's really good food, uh, tastes good and has the quality you want and all that type of thing. So there's no doubt that that the success of Newman's Own, that first bite, if you will, uh, really related to Paul's celebrity in the early days. But had the food itself really not been good, had it not been, you know, Paul was one of the earliest people to commit to 100% natural product. Um, and he just wanted the best ingredients. And uh, he felt that the best ingredients are natural ingredients, that you know, it, it, he did not do that because he said, I wanted to make a statement about natural products. He just said, the garden is where you get the food. Let's keep it as close to the garden as possible. Um, and, and I do think to go back to your original question on this is that uh, he, I wouldn't, I wouldn't know the history to know whether Paul was the first of this, that, or the other thing. Uh, I, I'm pretty confident that he was the first to uh, build a truly philanthropic uh, enterprise, you know, of the size that, and the, um, the uh, success of Newman's Own. There may have been, probably were others who tried. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think in Hollywood, um, you know, Paul was really respected by other serious actors because how serious he was about his craft. His craft was acting. And and he was known as a good guy. He, uh, you know, he, he, and he never did these things for publicity. Uh, he, he actually once when uh, he was filming and it was Susan Sarandon, I think, I'm pretty confident it was, uh, when he found out that she wasn't being paid the same wage, if you will, uh, that he was, he stepped in and shared his income with her. I, I mean, he was doing things like that um, he, because he just didn't think it was right. Okay, so, so and, and Paul, by the way, if he heard me, if he came back and heard me talking about him this way, he'd probably not be very happy because it sounds like, you know, we're creating a cult of Newman when we're not, but it's just the way the guy was. He had his imperfections. He knew about them. Um, uh, and, uh, but he tried hard, you know, and, and he had a, his, his compass was always pointed to a true north of, um, of doing his best to, you know, be a decent citizen and a contributing person uh, to a better world. So I think those things, the combination that he was such a good actor, he worked very hard at it. Paul was, he was really had to work hard uh, in building his roles and everything. I watched him do it writing, rewriting scripts and everything like that. He wasn't just a guy who walked on the stage. So I think serious actors, you know, respected him for that. And then they respected him for his humility and his, his real genuine generosity of spirit. So um, I think that had an influence. And of course, a lot of Hollywood, and it wasn't just Hollywood, same in other places, when they got into philanthropy, uh, the people who were advising them were more on the PR side of things. So their Mm. philanthropy was about, well, how do you use your philanthropy uh, to promote your celebrity? Um, Whereas Paul was just the opposite. He was using his celebrity simply to promote his philanthropy. Uh, And I I think to uh, the people like the ones you've mentioned, Kevin Bacon and others, um, you know, that resonated very much with them. and then they've gone on to uh, start these businesses. And by the way, it also has led to, by the time I left Newman's Own, we had identified over 25 other companies around the United States who were committed to 100% of their profits to charity and 80 plus percent of those attributed their motivation to Newman's Own and Paul Newman specifically. Wow. So they were consulting companies, craft breweries, restaurants involved, uh, and it was it was really a very significant growing uh, group of uh, philanthropic business entrepreneurs, um, and, and they were not just young ones. A lot of them were young, but they're also what were called encore. Some people who had been very successful in business, had done very well. Uh, they believed strongly in business as a model, and they had come back into business to create companies 
to give 100% of profit to charity. So there was really something going on. And that's, uh, um, mm. yeah, and I think Newman's own and Paul Newman were inspirations to those other people. Yeah, the legacy speaks for itself. So yeah, even if you didn't want us talking about it, he's he cr- helped create it. So it's it's helping everyone else. And um, I, I would love to go into more of part of your background to then leading up to how you met Paul. But I guess one thing to before that, I would love to know if there was a story in particular uh, that you have with Paul that is just fascinating to you, something that people might get a kick out of or something that you really treasure to this day when you reflect on the things you built together, the relationship you had with him. That's such a... um difficult question to answer with specificity. I, it, when, when people have asked me that question, my, my answer has always come down to really saying, you know, I just hope everybody will have a friend like Paul Newman in their lives. Uh, uh, he was, he was, a, he, was, he was a lot of fun to be with. He was funny. He was, uh, he was intellectually uh, uh, curious and, and, bright and he loved to exchange ideas. He was tremendously loyal to you as a friend. Um, and uh, we did so many, so many things together over time. Uh, the, uh, it, it's hard just to, to point things out. I think, you know, overall, what, what was always the most comfortable and fun for me with Paul was the fact that he was just such an average person in his own life, how he wanted to be and how he would, he would call me and, uh, uh, some, and, and leave these messages on my phone if I wasn't at my home. And he, they would always start with something like, Bob, Paul, ah, 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 I'll call you back. Because he had forgotten why he called me at the time. <laughs> yeah, because you expect like people expect those people to be so perfect, but they're just normal. Well, yeah, and he would come to me, and he would and he would say, uh, he was tr- trying to remember something, and he would say, "Oh, Bob, you know my my head's all full of fuzz. I don't remember anything anymore." I said, "Paul, listen, you get on stage and you do the stage manager in our town, and you stand there by yourself, and you talk for." two hours on stage without a script. It's all memory, it's in your head. And he'd look at me and he'd say, you're right, Bruce. <laughs> Again, with you know, Newman, just his, his humor, or he left a message once for my wife, I'll never forget where um, he called and said, uh, Linda, Paul, he was, then he'd go, ah, uh, how would you like to run away with an aging movie star? And then hung up. <laughs> <laughs> But, but those were, you know, if you traveled with him as we did all over, those were the, he, he was, he, he was doing things to really bring fun into people's lives. And, and, uh, and, and it was just a natural relationship. But then in terms of things that we did together, uh, you know, I think one of the um, uh, example of something which was very typical of Paul um, where his sense of ideas and creativity might have been ahead of what reality could support is he once called me um, this is back in the late nineties and he called and said, Bob, I got this, I got this idea. I want to run it by you. Um, he said, myself and this other fellow, I won't mention his name right now, are each going to put up some money and we're going to buy um, stock in public companies, and then we're going to write to the chief executives of these companies, and we're going to tell them you better give away more money, or we're going to show up at your stockholders meeting and, and you know make a lot of noise. Wow. Yeah. What do you think? And I said, well, you know, I, I understand what you're trying to do, Paul. I think it's you know it, it's something that's needed right now. This corporate America at this time it was at the nadir of its its generosity and and frankly, it was at the nadir of it, um, how people thought about companies and chief executives. 
And I, I, I chatted with Paul. I said, well, think about this, Paul. You know, you're an actor and this other guy does such and such. And um, you're going to show up in their offices and do what? And he said, yeah. He said, that doesn't seem to work pretty well and everything like that. He said, so what, what should we do? And I said, well, again, your idea is great. Let's, let's talk about it. Let's think about it because I've worked with a lot of CEOs through my life, my career. And CEOs don't grow in some orchard someplace. They, they start out maybe in the mailroom, you know, maybe, yeah. you know, whatever the case may be, uh, they're people. And why don't they do more? Uh, because there are certain things that constrain them. And uh, we uh, talked it through. And we began to put together a group. Uh, we had a, an amazing meeting uh, in New York um, of about 15 or so of the very, very top uh, chief executives. They were legends. They were so, so significant. Some were recently retired. And one of them was David Rockefeller, just to give you a name. Oh, wow. Most, most people relate to. Um, and we sat around, we talked about the idea, and these people um, all agreed that, that we had to do something that if corporate America needs to step up and begin to, uh, get involved again. It's not that it wasn't involved before, but to get involved in its communities in a different way. Um, and what was really interesting about that at the end of this meeting, uh, one of the fellows was there happened to be in the ice cream business and he handed out uh, coupons. You know, he's sitting around the table with all of these you know, titans of finance and industry for free pint of ice cream. And David Rockefeller got one, looked at it and, and uh, said to the guy next to me, so what's this for? And the guy said, well, you get a free pint of ice cream. And David <laughs> said, he said, everybody said, if anybody doesn't want theirs, I'll take it. <laughs> so, so, you know, again, what, what was, why do I mention that? Because it shows you that, that these people are, are simply people. Um, you know, there are constraints to what, they can do on the good side. And by the way, we, the people who are ultimately the stockholders, and we all are, most Americans now are stockholders through their 401ks, their IRAs, whatever, pensions, whatever they may have, um, you know, are under pr pressure to produce these short-term gains. And that was one of the things that we, we focused on. And we actually created out of that a uh, organization that was called the Committee Encouraging Corporate Philanthropy. Um, I think we started in around the year 2000. Uh, it still is going on. It's now called CECP, just the initials. And it's about just under 200 of the top chief executives globally now who get together on a regular agenda and uh, to discuss a corporation's role in society philanthropically and throughout the ESG of a company and how to build that into the culture of the company. So again, you see that Paul's idea, um, his insight, his impulse to act, then matched up with, let's bring some order to it. One of the things Paul would always say to me, he said, Bob, can you help me bring order? Any order to what I'm doing, you know? And, and uh, so that was a bit of my role was to help do that without getting in the way of his ideas and his ownership of these things, if you will. Yeah. yeah so that, he and I are actually founding, Paul and I together were founding members of the, uh, what is now CECP of the board of directors. And uh, I served in that role until 2019. Wow. 20 years. Yeah. That's, that's incredible. And it's still going strong. Yeah. That's great. That's, that's amazing to see it lasting on. Um, and to that point um, of what you said before, I would love to go back. Oh, well, that's why I see now you were the COO until uh, 2008 when you took over as CEO. Because the, the COO is like the operational, remain uh, bring order and, and operational excellence to things. Um, but I would love to know, maybe we can go backwards instead of me just going all the way to your, to your background in life early on is how you ended up meeting Paul, because I know you had the three businesses, you had the cable TV um, 
And then you had the FM radio station and then you had a consulting firm for nonprofits. Did right. all of that just naturally lead up, especially the consulting for nonprofits to meeting Paul and then right. running Newman's? Yeah. Um, well, it was, it was just the nonprofit background. By that time, I met Paul in 92, 93. Um, and I had founded my consulting firm in 1980. Um, so I'd been running it for 12, 13 years by then. Um, and Paul had started, you may be familiar with this, a uh, camp for children with life-limiting medical conditions. The original camp is called the Hole in the Wall Gang Camp in Ashford, mm. Connecticut. And uh, there had been a second camp started in upstate New York. And um, he was getting involved in a third camp, um, which would have been the very first one outside of America. It was in Ireland. And uh, he he would, Paul would get into these things because they, he, he, they felt right to him. Uh, and everything you, about these have these wonderful stories about them. So in the case of the camp in Ireland, somebody got the Irish government to uh, lease for the purpose of having this camp, a real honest to goodness castle that the keep, the castle keep dated back to the 12th century, I think, um, and, and it was still there and it had been built around and there were 500 acres of land with it. Um, and the Irish government had agreed to lease it for the purposes of this camp for 100 years for one Irish pound, which was just under $2 at the time at the exchange rate. And uh, when Paul first heard about the camp uh, for the children and the fact that this had been set up by somebody without Without his input, he said, well, gee, we can't have a camp for sick children in Ireland. It rains and it's cold over there and all that type of thing. Um, but this fellow who did this was very clever. He knew about Paul and he knew that Paul was also a man of painfully profound courtesy. And he, he uh, and the fellow told Paul, well, you know, the, the Taoiseach of Ireland, that's the prime minister, Taoiseach is Irish language, mm. um, really was the person who made this gift at possible. Well, my goodness, I have to go over to Ireland myself and personally thank him and explain why it just won't work. Well, this fellow knew that if he got Paul to the, the grounds and Paul saw the castle, being a creative guy and an actor, Paul's gonna walk around and, and fall in love with it and begin to see you know, a medieval bazaar here and the kids you know, doing this over there. And of course it worked. He got sucked right into it, and, and uh, next thing you know, he was going to—he was committed to do this camp in Ireland. Mm. Well, it had been a year or so later, and nothing had happened. Um, and uh, I got a phone call from the person who was then the the head of the camp in Connecticut. I had worked with him in Greece on a couple of uh, nonprofit projects. Um, and uh, he said, would ask me if I would go see Paul, because he had said to Paul, before you abandon this, please talk to this fellow, Bob Forrester. He lives up the road about an hour from you, and he'll come down and chat with you. So I drove all the way down to Westport, went into Paul's property, knocked on the door. He had a barn where he had his office, and the door opens up, and, and there's Paul Newman. And I said, hi, I'm Bob Forrester. And he said, I'm Paul Newman. And I literally almost said, of course you are. You couldn't possibly be here. <laughs> Other than Paul Newman, and and then he said, "You want a beer?" And I, it was about five in the afternoon. And I initially, you know, being a little bit nervous about things, I said, "No, no, thank you." And he just said, "Well, the hell with you. Come on in, anyways." And I said to Paul, "Yeah, I'll have that beer." And and we sat down, we had a beer, and we just chatted. Um, that was typical of Newman. And the way he presented this, I know this is a long story, so you'll edit it how you want to. I, I love the uh, stories. Okay, so good. I'm glad you're telling me that. Uh, so, so Paul said, well, he said, here's the thing. He said, you know, I got, got involved in this and it's been well over a year and, and we need to raise $7 million and we, we only have uh, um, $4 million raised and that was raised a long time ago and, uh, mm. and nothing's happening and a lot of people are telling me, Paul, you made a mistake. You should just 
you know, before anything happens over there, cut your losses and fold up, fold up the tent, come home. But this other guy says, you should talk to me first. So he, I said, well, listen, I'll go over and take a look at it for you. I won't charge you anything. You just pay my airfare. And I flew over to Ireland, uh, went to this place, looked at it. It was magnificent uh, facility, um, but old. Uh, and after I looked at the numbers and everything, I called Paul from Ireland and said, well, here's the deal, Paul. Um, this is going to cost at least $20 million to build it, get it up operational. Uh, you know, that's going to be over a period of, you know, full in over maybe four years, five years. Um, and there's only $3 million that's been raised and 2 million of it is yours, Paul. So it hasn't been raised. It's your money. <laughs> he said, oh my goodness. He said, well, what are we going to do? And I said, oh, by the way, and some children are coming this summer. I think I called him. It was, I, I believe it was in November of 93, uh, maybe December, something like that. It was, I know it was cold rain over there at the time. Yeah. And, and I said, well, listen, uh, what, at least we can give some children, sick children, a really good time this summer. And we might be able to make it work. So let's go ahead with this summer and let's see what we can pull together. And that's how Paul and I met. And we actually made a great success out of it. It's now been operating. It opened up in 94 and it's still operating. It takes children from throughout Europe, many different kinds of medical conditions. Uh, it, it, if it wasn't for the success of this camp, um, we probably would have been a long time before we ventured out of America. And now we're taking children from 50 different countries at these camps. We have 16 of them around the world and smaller ones in the developing world. Wow. And, um, that's how I met Paul. And then he and I just, through this process, became friends. We hung out a lot together. Um, it began to cost me a great deal of money because I refused to work for him. So all of the work that I did, I did pro bono. And it was a lot. And then I was donating money to, to help but because I was just believed in what we were doing. Yeah. And together, um, you know, Paul was always the founder, but I was with him on the founding of 13 more camps and the developing world program. Um, and we had fun along the way. I mean, we did, um, we, we did things which were just hard to imagine because I took the position we can't lose. The only way we lose is that if we abandon the children and not do this. So let's get it going. Uh, I know how to do it. You're the inspiration. You're the face of it. And maybe we'll get lucky along the way. Boy, did we get lucky. Uh, we, it was just amazing. And I could talk to you about it at some time, how we raised very large gifts in a culture uh, that had no real um, history of doing this. And in an economy, Ireland at that time was the poorest economy in Europe. Uh, so, I didn't know yeah, that. We had a, we, we, yeah, this, this was before the, what was called the Celtic Tiger took off. The EU uh, was formed uh, as a, a, you know, an economic uh, structure. Um, and, and so th that's how I met Paul and that's how we were glued together in so many ways and, and how we, you know, when you're traveling with somebody as we did, we're, you know, your friends, your buddies, you're hanging out, you're not, it's not a business relationship. I could never really, uh, you know, Paul would always ask me, shouldn't I be paying you? And I said, no, you shouldn't be paying me, you know? Yeah. Cause that, that, that's on that point, it's always, I find hard to separate business and friendship with all of the friends I have and, and what they do. Yeah. With their businesses but it's nice to see you guys complemented each other well and we're able to figure out a, a relationship that didn't hinder anyone from what you actually what the mission was yeah i don't think we could have had the friendship we had had there been a business relationship um mm. and uh and we did the things we did together you know the, the this business in ireland 
repeated many, many different times and in, in different situations where uh, it would start with a phone call from Paul where he would have this idea that other people would say, you're nuts, it's not going to work. He'd call Forrester and I would say, well, let's give it a try. Yeah. You know, figure it out. It, you know, the my mantra in all of this is always do no harm. Uh, if If I thought that something really wasn't going to work and I had a lot a lot of experience. So I, I had some basis for just intuitive analysis of the situation. Um, I wouldn't do it. Or if I thought it was gonna jeopardize anything or we would create a program for children that didn't have the safety protocols or the cult, the, the cure necessary, then never would have done that. That was, you know, we insisted that right away that the, the health-related issues and safety of the children hmm. that is always number one. And um, once those are taken care of, everything else is just business, hmm. uh, you know, like any other business. Yeah, yeah. and I would love to know how, I mean, you have the background with the businesses you built, and then you went into the nonprofit sector so much. How a company nowadays, if, if say, for example, you had like a top CEO come in and ask you, how do I balance the profit with being charitable and giving back well? Basically, how do you balance profit and, and nonprofit related acts or profit and charitable acts? What would you say to that that person? Yeah. Well, I, I would say there's there's not an easy, you know, formula for that mm. uh, because you know, every situation is going to be unique to the individuals involved in the circumstances of what they're involved in. So for instance, you know, very easy example of that is that if you're a public trading company, you have a very different set of circumstances you must work within if you're a private company. So I'll, I'll, you, we could go way down and show all sorts of different circumstances that define a situation. But um, w- one of the things I would say, which would be one of the more difficult things for some CEOs to grasp um, particularly on the public company side, is that if if you don't have philanthropy, and they would recoil at the word philanthropy, it's too soft, you know. Mm. Uh, that's just about money, isn't it? No, philanthropy is a Greek-rooted word. It means love for humankind. And, mm. um, it, it, you know, Paul and I both believed in that word, and we fought for that word, but other people were trying to call it something else. But if that's not involved, um, then there's always the question of, are you really doing things ultimately for the right purpose of helping make the better world with with your place in that world? Mm-hmm. Then you have to be understandably responsive to your stockholders and stakeholders um, and matching those things. So, you know, it comes down to practicality. So many companies would try to get into it from a marketing point of view. I was involved in a very, very large, major, well-known CPG, uh, consumer packaged product food company, and beverage company, um, that years ago tried to uh, um, use, combine a philanthropic approach uh, and marketing, but it let marketing be the lead. Mm. In this. And when this CEO happened to be a woman, asked me my my thoughts about it. I said, well, what you're doing is very courageous. But the weary point I have is that marketing has a very definite, understandably so, set of metrics. And that is they have to be pushing that financial needle. And if they're not making that, then it's not going to work from their perspective. And sure enough, that's what happened. Um, so it's a matter of how do you, if you're thinking about it from a marketing point of view, how do you take your philanthropy and then market that yeah. as opposed to your marketing and say, how do we make that philanthropic? Uh, there's nothing wrong with cause related marketing things like that. It's just that if you don't really understand the beast properly, then you could, the beast could bite you later. Yeah. Um, it can come off wrong. Cause I've seen that too with companies nowadays on, on social media, you see everything out and open on the internet, but to, but yeah. to what you said too, on something you said earlier, it's like, 
the end goal has to be is this uh for other people like is it is it philanthropy and if it's not you have to rewire your intentions it seems you have you have to align if you, particularly if you're a public company um i i'm a capitalist i believe in it uh, i also believe that it can get way out of control uh, like most of my uh colleagues would um but, but fundamentally, it's the best system you know, because it's, you know, has to be market responsive and, mm. and you know, that really forces you to innovate and forces you to be responsive and all sorts of other things. Um, mm -hmm. But the, uh, now as you think about it, particularly with younger people nowadays who uh, really expect of their employers to be socially responsible in a serious way, um, that they have to think about the transparency of what they're doing and, and explaining that and why is this really good for the world, not just good for a stockholder. And it can, you can be both at the same time. It's sort of like, you know, say a, a company, um, well, I'll, I'll have to use, a, 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 and I don't mean to pick on any industry, but let's say an uh, an oil tanker runs aground, and then the oil company announces a program in environmental protection. They could be very sincere about that, but the reaction is going to be, no, you know, that's- Yeah, your actions don't back it. Like your 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 values don't align with that. Yeah, uh, but if that, if, if, if that oil company, let's say had a program that was um, focused on um, children, and you know, providing educational. Um, well, that would also they could also have their environmental program because that makes a great deal of sense. And by the way, oil companies are my experience with them is that and their philanthropy is really quite good. Uh, but because they have handled it the way they have, it's it's uh, there's a lot of skepticism because they're you know you're just doing it uh, because it's good for you. Uh, well, no, we're doing other things also. Um, pharmaceuticals are the same way. And by the way, I think pharmaceuticals are some of the most generous, uh, thoughtful companies we have in America. They give away billions of dollars a year. And, and I know many of the CEOs who did, um, and they're very genuine, but boy, do they get hammered. And mm. uh, uh, because it's all seen as, uh, they, they have a lot of ground to cover. So the more authentic, I guess I'm saying, mm. that there's, philanthropy is the more believable they will become um and and uh yeah yeah because it, it, it to that point too it's amazing with like the newman's own model it's like yeah, people would think okay give away 100 percent of profits it's not gonna help the business but it actually ended up helping the business oh yeah uh, you know you the more you give in a way the more you can receive i i think uh look we made a great food product there's no doubt about it but our competitors were the biggest companies uh they could cream us you know their their, their budget for a single product was almost equal to our, our entire overhead um what really gave us that that first bite edge over others was our philanthropy the awareness of us as a as a as a company that really cared and always had our history was focused on that and it also demonst was demonstrated um, in recessions and how um, our food products did not suffer because we're, we were a high priced food product uh, like other high priced food products and we heard people say you know I'm going to keep buying Newman's own even though it's more expensive because I don't want to abandon the children I don't want to you know, abandon the uh, the program they have in, in for veterans uh, or something along those lines. Uh, and they knew we weren't doing it to sell our products. Uh, we were selling our products to do our philanthropy. Um, so That's good. Yeah. I like that. But it, it was it was a tough uh, road because I wish we had more money to put into marketing and advertising. And, um, but we just didn't have it. Yeah. So it was our brand. The I used to call it the philanthropic brand, which would get some people rolling their eyes. But I thought it was the most important 
aspect of who we were. Yeah, you well, you guys lived it, and where a lot of a lot of people don't, a lot of companies, I should say, don't. Um, but I know, I know we we have been going backwards to sure from from the more recent uh, things and, and your relationship with Paul to then you and your background. But I would love to know. I know Paul was um, a son of immigrants, and you were as well. Um, and you guys. I mean, your upbringing was definitely tough. Like what, how, how is it to know, or how is it to reflect on growing up in that way to now being someone who's like, you guys have given so much back to the world. Um, where did you get that giving from? Was it just a, a, a thing that was nurtured along the way? Or did your parents have some of that innate selflessness that was ingrained in you early on? Now, I it was just part of our lives that we, uh, my father was born in Scotland, my mother in Sweden. Uh, They immigrated as young children uh, with their parents. Um, My Swedish grandfather was a metal worker, sheet metal worker and craftsman. He was a tradesman. And um, my father uh, grew up very poor in West Virginia. Um, Mm. Somehow got lucky and got a scholarship to Trinity College in Hartford and also went on and got a master's degree from Harvard. But he was an educator and then worked for the state. Um, and uh, they had no money, and uh, but they, they wanted to move us over the line into another town, which was one of the more affluent towns in America at, at that time. And we lived in a, a three-family home in a near what was called the projects at that point. Uh, and, uh, but they as immigrants wanted a better opportunity for their children. Uh, my father worked two jobs. Uh, my mother was a medical secretary. Um, I had a, started working at 11 years old, maybe with my paper route. And then I was working uh, on a conveyor belt at a, a dairy processing plant, knocking the lids off of milk containers when they came in from the trucks and at wow. 16 it was packing groceries and that was just part of the deal uh, yeah, and uh, and I recall you know every 30 days it, it would be like this dark cloud would descend on the house uh, it was the time my father was doing the monthly bills you know and it was not a happy time he would run around turning off all the lights because he, Know, burning up too much electricity because you yeah, see yeah. electrical bill and stuff like that. But they always had enough money to give five or ten dollars worth of contributions, you know, the Salvation Army, um, a you know, a homeless shelter and stuff like that. It was just again part of the deal. There was no big anything big about it. It was just what you do. Um my mother was very involved in the church and the rummage sales, you know, collected and gave things. Yeah. And I went out for the March of Dimes. And that, do you know what the March of Dimes were back then? It was how we raised money for uh, the polio problem. The kids would walk wow, around. Yep, shake a can at, at doors and mm. put in a nickel or a penny or a dime. Um, and uh, so it was always part of the ambient life I was in as a young kid. It, uh, nobody ever sat down and said, let's talk about this. Or um, it was just kind of what you do. Uh, and, you know, growing up in a very diverse neighborhood, a lot of immigrant families, a lot of racial diversity, uh, you know, people would sit on their, their, their stoops and, at, you know, argue over the Yankees and the Red Sox. And, and uh, but get along and then do things together. And, um, you know, all of that stuff uh, growing up creates the future person. Uh, it's not the only thing. And, uh, but then my, my, what really happened is when I came back from Vietnam, I was a, uh, had volunteered actually to, to uh, join the army then. Um, not because I had a political basis for it. It was just, again, I thought, well, that's what you're supposed to do, you know? Um, and I came back out of this place where I was seeing the very worst of what people can do. Um, wanted to do my graduate work 
and went to work at a university and so I could get tuition uh, abatement and just happened to end up in their development office, which is their, you know, the fundraising office. And this is a university that was formed in 1957. So it was still quite young. This, this is only 14 years after it was formed and it was formed by bringing together three institutions that were quite old. Uh, and it was being built by the community. Um, people and corporations were donating their time and their money to build a, a private independent university because they felt this was necessary uh, to have a independent university that was always responsive to the needs of community. Um, and so I was put into this soup, if you will, I, in the development office. I was, was made director of corporate relations, which was a big title, which meant you know, I knew nothing about what I was doing, but I was uh -huh. here to do it. And uh, and these coming back from Vietnam as a young man during this time of great turbulence in in America, um, I was a curiosity, and these these CEOs took a real interest in me. They wanted to understand me and my experience, and then they began to mentor me, and I began to to see the wonder of what they were doing and how they were not asking anything for themselves, but they had this belief in, they had the belief in what, what de Tocqueville talked about uh, back in the early eighties when he was observing American society. And he said, these Americans, I'll paraphrase this, are, are peculiar people. If they see a problem in their community, they form a committee to deal with it without any reference to government. That's what they were doing. Uh, they were building in a university because they felt there was a need in their community and they were gonna get it done to fulfill that need. Um, and that was my early introduction to this. And it also was my introduction to how important the humanities are in our education system and how, it, it, how central they are to uh, a civil society, to the to the dialogue that's necessary. And then, and then how important liberal education is overall to democracy to have that and have the choices that come with a private sector independent university or a public university as opposed to a singular type of system. Again, the private university always has to be responsive to its marketplace. So when, mm. when the state of Connecticut, where I was, created community colleges. Well, some of that university's need disappeared because the community now had community colleges funded by tax dollars. So the university didn't go away. It responded and, and found, well, there was another missing need and it created a consortium among universities and colleges to um, bring economies of scale to what they could offer and do other things that were then forcing the public sector to do better because now you had well these guys can do it less expensively than we can how can we justify it so you know the, the, those things i don't know whether i'm making sense about that but really began to impress on a young mind yeah um, the power of philanthropy again to be a very positive force and how everybody big or small can make a difference and then i went on and had all of these amazing experiences that um just amplify that everywhere I went. I was, I was humbled by them all. Yeah. Yeah. I, pre I appreciate the detail with all of that too. Cause it's amazing to know like how it's kind of, it's, it is rooted in, in a lot of how you grew up and then the things you learned along the way to just learn more about it and how it impressed itself upon you. Um, it's cool to perspective to see like you're part of each stage and now you can give like actual insight and, because you live through it to people that are trying to do it themselves. Um, I think there's a quote by Ali. It's like uh, service to others is the rent you pay for your time here on earth. Yeah. It goes. So, yeah. So I think, I think that's important for others to keep in mind, but if there's one thing you would want to um, impress upon people or like say to people themselves, whether they're tuning in, whether this be five years down the line and they're listening to this video just something that's been on your mind recently or something you want to have people remember kind of to give you the stage. Cause I've been asking a lot of the questions lately um, for this. Yeah, that's, that's a, 
really good question. I, I, I guess, again, I, I would hope people recognize again, this view that Paul and I had about luck, um, the role it plays in people's lives. Now people can call this different things. We happen to call it luck. Um, and uh, good luck and bad luck, you know, the, the beneficence of good luck and the brutality of, of bad luck. And I'm talking about not the luck of the lottery, winning the lottery or yeah. a good bet on the horses or something. I'm talking about the luck of circumstances. So, mm. you know, here I was born in the United States. Um, I was lucky. Yeah, I had nothing to do with where I was born, believe me, even that I was born. Uh, but the opportunities that came with that, um, as you know, uh, uh, we've discussed this before that, you know, I had learned, have them, they don't go away, learning disabilities. Uh, that was really unlucky. You know, that just happened to be what was in my DNA. Um, but, but had I, let's say been born in Papua, well, I shouldn't say that because it might've been helpful there. I was gonna say Papua New Guinea, but, but mm -hmm. that's wrong because learning disabilities could be an advantage there mm. because learning disabilities are really culturally defined. Uh, they're not defined by- Yeah, yeah, I see. A global kind of thing. You know, what, yeah. what is a learning disability in America could really be an advantage in another culture. Mm. Um, but, um, so it's, it's that the luck of circumstance and, and the ability of each individual, no matter who you are, uh, what your circumstances are, to do something to help make the world a better place. Uh, I, you know, I'm not an evangelist. I'm not a preacher on these things. I'm just um, talking about if, if you take a real high, very high altitude look. You know, again, depending on your belief system, we may all hope to be at a very high altitude someday, you know, <laughs> celestially high altitude. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but the, uh, there, there is a, a, a struggle that goes on, uh, you know, this pretty philosophical kind of thinking that, mm. you know, here, here we have a species that's capable of the worst possible things, but also is capable of the most wonderful things at the same time. Um, every individual has the ability to make it the most wonderful thing. Mm. Um, and what a difference you can make. Uh, and if you do it for the right reasons, it's really going to make a difference in your life too. Um, it, it, it could be giving some money. It could be giving some time. It could be helping somebody home with the grocery bags. I don't know what the case may be. Um, you know, for me, again, I was lucky to be brought up in a family in a neighborhood where, you know, my mother would say, go help that lady with the grocery bag. Okay. <laughs> uh, and it, why? I'd never, just the right thing to do, you know, yeah, type yeah. of thing. Um, so, you know, acknowledge luck and, and, and then the brutality of luck in some people's lives, the luck of circumstance. Uh, you know, if you're born in one of the great slums of the world, you know, what do those circumstances, what are they going to allow you to become if you're, if you're born with intellectual challenges, if, if you're um, in, in the middle of a war, uh, if you're a child that's been trafficked, mm -hmm. uh, all of these things, which are just horrible, horrible. It's almost yeah. a disservice to call it luck, but it is, you know, a circumstance. Yeah. And, um, so, and I just hope people would keep that when they're getting involved in philanthropy is always try to think about that issue or that point of view while they're thinking about other things that might propel them to do certain things like how does it benefit the stockholder? That's mm -hmm. okay, all right? But make sure you're benefiting um, the purpose at the same time. Yeah, yeah, not for other people, not just you. And your entire point brings in it of itself like a, a level of humility. Um, because when you start to think about that, you kind of go outside yourself and thinking like, or you, you, and you can stop feeling sorry for yourself if you're feeling sorry for yourself. 
Um, so I, I like that a lot. Yeah. Yeah. So just sort of like let go, you know, and, and just yeah. do it because it's the right thing to do. And um, That's just my point of view. And it was Paul Newman's and that's one of the reasons we were friends. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I love, I loved hearing the entire story of, of many of the things, your relationship with him, a lot of Newman's own stuff. Um, a lot of your own life and, and like the common themes to things. Uh, Thank I, you. I, yeah, I do think there's a lot of things to take away from this for people, for myself. So I appreciate the time to have you talk on all of it. Well, I hope so. I, I appreciate it. And, uh, you know, I get to a certain age and I, um, I'm not sure how interesting what I have to say is to others, but I'm going to go ahead and say it <laughs> the way it was. And, uh, and hopefully, uh, you know, um, hopefully it's, it'll be helpful to somebody. Yeah. And everybody has their stories. And um, I love hearing other people's stories. Yeah. Yeah. I'm absolutely in the same way. That's, that's what a lot of this is built around because there's so much to share with the stories. So yeah, I hope, I hope people take some stuff away as well. Great. Yeah. Thank you. All right, Anthony. Thank you.